Selling with a story is a great way to boost your sales. Find out how on today's episode. Today's episode is brought to you by ProWritingAid. Save thousands of dollars on an editor by using the best tool in the business at servemaster.com front slash ProWritingAid. Are you tired of dealing with your boss? Do you feel underpaid and underappreciated? If you want to make it online, fire your boss and start living your retirement dreams now. Then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Serve No Master Podcast, where you'll learn how to open new revenue streams and make money while you sleep. Presented live from a tropical island in the South Pacific by best-selling author Jonathan Green. Now, here's your host. Producers are very excited about this topic, and I'm excited to be here with you in my garden. And speaking of the garden, what I want to start by talking about is one of the greatest athletes of all time, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, in uh, around 1983, 1984, was going from playing basketball at North Carolina, about to start playing professional, going from college to professional. And he was trying to f- figure out what to do. And it began with, well, who, who, whose shoe am I going to wear? Now, we all know now that it's Nike, but at the time, that's not who he wanted. He wasn't able to get who he wanted. And he went to a lot of different companies, and Nike offered him the craziest deal. They had the biggest ideas. They showed him all these custom shoes. They offered him an insane amount of money. And he goes, I don't like those shoes. They're high tops. I like low tops. They go, no problem. We'll cut them down. You can design the shoe. This was the first time an athlete got to have their voice heard. Where he goes, here's what I like in far as design. And so they modified the shoe to match what he wanted. 30 years later, billions and billions of dollars of sales of Air Jordans. There's a whole world of sneakerheads and people that know all the different types. Like, oh, that's a 94, that's a 93, that's a this, that's a that. I don't know that much about shoes. I know a little bit. I did some research for today's episode and I was really fascinated by that. And the importance of the story is that we buy from people, not brands. People are far more important. What we really want and we care more about is the person or the what they are and what we represent when we're wearing their brand. Oh, maybe if I wear the, like no one thinks if you wear shoes, you're going to jump higher. But if I said to you, hey, when you wear the shoes Michael Jordan designed, a little bit of his magic is passed on to you. Sounds a lot more believable, right? Because we're designed to believe stories. And why do you buy? Is it brands or endorsements? What large companies end up doing is spending thousands, then tens of thousands and millions and even billions of dollars building up a really big brand. And they go, oh, we want everyone to know our brand. But guess what? People don't care about brands. They really don't. Very few of us have an emotional connection or care when a brand goes out of business. I used to really like eating dinner at Boston Market. High quality dinner at a good price. Then they all disappeared. Did I cry? No, I don't even ever think about it except when I'm talking about business. I think a couple still exist. Like I think I've seen one in the past 10 years, but they used to be everywhere. They used to be ubiquitous. They used to be on every street corner. They were really hot for a little while and then they all disappeared. Whew. Think about how people react to that versus when their favorite athlete retires. Very different. When I was in high school, I had a baseball game called Ken Griffey Jr. Major League Baseball. I never heard of him before, but I still remember his name now and I learned about him. I'm like, oh, this guy must be a senior if there's a junior. I think he played for Seattle. Wish I could be 100% positive on that. I'm pretty sure it was like, definitely was a team in the Pacific Northwest. That's my feel in my gut. But again, this was 25 years ago, but it, it sticks in your brain. I've played a lot of other baseball games. I can't tell you their names. So there's something about the magic. And that's why we put celebrities. Actually, I was just having a talk with Paris about this idea. I was like, maybe we need to get a celebrity. Maybe it would be interesting if, you know, in front of my website, there was like a minor celebrity. It would be interesting. She did not like that idea. I'll tell you that right now. She didn't fully get it. She's younger than me. And so she grew up in the idea of influencer marketing, which is, oh, you get people based on how many social media followers they have. That's not, that doesn't really interest me as much. I don't really want to sell stuff to someone's Twitter following. Don't care about that. I'm not a social media marketer in that way. But the idea of having someone who uses your stuff, if you watch uh, NASCAR Formula One racing at the end of the race, especially NASCAR, uh, if you win, they, they shoot the champagne all over you. Then you stand in front of your car holding the trophy and they do 20 to 50 pictures of you 
and they have a big box and they pull out a box. First, everyone puts on the Budweiser hat. Then everyone puts on the uh, next company's hat and the next company's hat and the next company's hat. And so there's each company gets a picture of you, of their celebrity, their endorser, the person they've endorsed, wearing their gear right after winning. That's the value. The value is not in the tiny sticker that's on the car that no one can see. We think that because we don't know as much about it. So if you look at these sports cars, these race cars, right? There's tons of tiny logos on them. The tiny logos don't matter because no one can see them anyways. That's not the value. They get that put on the car, but the real value is the picture of the person wearing their brand or wearing their logo. And when a celebrity has a big endorsement, they start to have rules in their lives. They're only allowed to wear shoes. You'll never see Michael Jordan wearing a Reebok. Are you kidding me? What would happen? People would freak out. He's not wearing his own shoe. When someone's sponsored by a beer, they have to drink that beer. It doesn't matter if they like it or not. They do now. It becomes what they like. They're not allowed to order another beer. They're not allowed to sample anything else. It becomes that's what they drink because that's their identity. Especially because now in this day and age, everyone's wearing a wire. Everyone's got a video camera on them. They can catch you drinking the wrong beer. You can lose your endorsement. So when you're buying, many of us, and we buy from endorsements, many brands haven't figured that out, that they should just have stayed with a personal identity. Think about Wendy's. Most of us know Wendy's was started to run by Dave Thomas, and that Wendy's is the name of his daughter. Why do I know that? Dave Thomas appeared in every single one of his commercials until he died. He talked about his daughter every single time. That's how a guy was able to enter a really, really crowded market, the fast food market, and establish a foothold because he was a person. And at Wendy's, you feel like, oh, I'm like at a, I'm like at a place a guy built for his daughter. It has a little bit of a feel. I don't have a large personal connection with Wendy's anymore, but I think about their marketing, whereas McDonald's is just a brand, right? They have lots of pictures, but they don't have an identity. Sure, they're doing great, and they're doing a lot of other things right, but we don't have the same feel about them. Think about when you go to a restaurant and you know the chef or you know the name of the chef or you know their story it becomes more interesting. We get pulled into stories. And this brings me to the next point is that the most important part of this business of what I do right now is that I have the ability to work with people that I like. For most of my life, I work with the people that would hire me. I remember one of the apartments that I had when I was living in England, uh, one of our roommates moved out. We had a couple of people, you know, tour the house. And I asked the landlord, do we get to choose the next person? He goes, nope. He goes, I'm going to pick whoever is going to pay me the most. So we ended up with a roommate. It was three guys in our 20s and one guy in his late 40s. Was it weird? Yes. Was one of the other roommates actually weirder than him? Actually turned out, yes. A lot of surprises in that living situation. It's much more common to have stranger roommates in England than it is in America. It was something totally foreign to me, but that's how you learn through experience. Now I get to live with people I like. I get to work with people I like because I'm the boss. One of the biggest advantages is that I no longer have to work with people that happen to get hired by a manager who happened to hire me too. I get to be around and partner with people I like. Sometimes people reach out to me and want to work with me, and I don't like them. I'm pretty bad about that, actually. I'm really insular because I'm like, oh, I've got a family. I've got enough friends. I don't want new friends. So grumpy. And sometimes, actually, people I really don't like, I go, Jonathan, control yourself. Give them a chance. They end up becoming the people I like the most out of that circle of friends. But it's that ability to choose that's so freeing. We talk about different types of freedom on this podcast all the time. We talk about the freedom of financial freedom. We talk about locational freedom, the ability to live anywhere you want or travel anywhere you want. For me, while I value financial freedom, I actually value locational freedom more. Where I live is paradise. I live somewhere magical. I'm so fortunate that I live here. It took a lot of planning, a lot of hard work. Between when I decided to move to this island when I moved here, it took two years of planning, modifying my business, and putting in a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. But still, I'm absolutely fortunate that I was able to make this happen. And that's very valuable to me. If I lived in America, I'd probably make a lot more money because I would be able to do things that I can't do here. I don't have internet during the day. How about that one? When I try to do interviews or podcasts or video recordings with other people, a lot of times there's glitches in the call. People feel like they're making a phone call in the 1970s around the world. They don't like it. They get mad at me. I go, it's not my fault. It's where I live. What can I do? If there was better internet, I'd pay for it. But the ability to work with people you like is an important lesson because that feeds into 
the type of stories that we build in because we want to buy from people that we like. If you don't like me, it's unlikely that you'll buy one of my courses. And somewhere between 10 and 15% of the people who encounter me do not like me a lot. They significantly dislike me. I get hate mail. I, some of the mails I get, some of the letters I get, almost all of them have misinterpreted something I've said, which can happen. I deal with this all the time within my team. Last night I was talking to my team about how we roadmap and plan out different podcasts. They came with some podcast topics. I said, here's why these ones are all wrong. And I was, then I was worried. And I, had a, I sent a long message to parents. I go, I'm worried that this came across as me being like angry or grumpy because it's written. Do I need to like follow up and send another message? No, no, it didn't come across that way. You're fine. So having someone else do that, I worry about that because I know that we can have our, I know that we can have what we said misinterpreted. So when people don't like you and people don't like me, and that's fine. It's part of life. Not everyone's going to like you. That's a lesson you have to learn, right? It's a phase of growing your business. If you go to a certain size, there's going to be people that don't like you, just like there's going to be people that love you. 10 to 15% of people love me and will buy anything I produce, listen to every podcast episode, review everything I do. They're super fans. And there's a balance, right? Just like between Jedi and Sith, there's good and there's evil. There's balance in the universe, the yin and the yang. There's the people that love you and the people that hate you. And they usually balance out. That's when you know you're kind of in the sweet spot. So we want people to like us. And the way we do that is by telling stories. And the first part of that process, I know it feels like we took a long journey to get here, but we want to do that is we want to build rapport. Rapport is where you and someone else feel like you're in alignment, that you feel like you're on the same road. And there's physical elements of rapport. And you can learn all about this if you study NLP, neuro-linguistic programming. They talk about things like where you breathe at the same rate, you blink at the same rate. One of you crosses your legs, the other person crosses their legs. You're facing each other and you're mirroring what everyone's doing, all that stuff. It's complicated and advanced, but you can learn it all. I have some friends who are really good NLP teachers. So I know a little bit. I've never been through the training myself. But when you want to build rapport with customers, when you're selling with a story, when you're creating the story that is the story of your brand, the story of your company, the story of you, and this is a story that goes across all of your sales pages within your emails, the first thing is alignment of beliefs. If you and me have the same beliefs, then we're more likely to be in alignment. And this can be really small stuff or really big stuff. I believe in the power of taking control of your destiny. I believe that you have the ability to transform your life when you realize that you're capable of things that you've limited yourself. I believe that self-education can be more powerful than university level education. I massively believe in high school. I do believe high school could be better. I believe we made some changes. We don't learn as many cool skills as we used to. I would, oh my gosh, if I go back in time, I wish, I told this before that I would learned um, spreadsheets, but I also wish I'd learned accounting. I didn't know the difference between API and APY and APR until I was like 24. And they really matter because one of them is where you're losing money, one of them is where you're making money. I didn't understand bank accounts or credit cards until far too late in my life. And most of us are that way. I still struggle with understanding car loans because they're weird. There's a lot of moving parts and they're complicated. Car insurance and how you choose the right insurance and what type of premiums should you do. All those things that really, really affect your life far more than figuring out the area of a triangle. How much should I pay for health insurance? How much, what type of premium do I want? What type of copay do I want? All those different things. Do I want a different limit? Do I want this type of insurance? Program? All that stuff. It's really complicated. It's very overwhelming. And I have several friends who are insurance agents. And I still couldn't figure out even why I bought insurance for them. I was like, just we're friends. Please give me one of the better ones. Don't do to me what you do to most of the dummies out there. That's all I could say to them. So alignment of belief is where people come from the same set of beliefs. If you really believe the college education is the absolute best thing you could do for your children, if you believe that traveling around the world is a waste of time, then you're not going to be in alignment with some of my big beliefs, right? We're not going to be on the same page. If you believe that people have more letters after their names are smarter than people that don't, then you're going to struggle to learn from me if you have a PhD, if you have an MBA. I only have an MA. I don't have a B in the middle. So you can have these beliefs that really matter. I have a certain set of beliefs about chiropractor. I have a friend who's a chiropractor, by the way, but I would never go to a chiropractor. It makes me very nervous. It sounds really cracky. I don't like those loud noises. So it's very hard for you if you're a chiropractor to sell me chiropractor services because you're already not in alignment about that core belief. It seems to me that every single time someone approaches me and they want to do a weight loss product, they're a chiropractor. They go, I'm a doctor. 
They, you know, they have doctor and then their first name. That's another sign that something's up. It's doctor first name, not doctor last name. And they want to teach weight loss. And I was like, I didn't even know they taught that at chiropractor school. I thought they teach you how to fix backs. Now, my mom goes to a chiropractor every week, swears by it, has all these back problems. I don't know, but she's massively into chiropractors, right? So she has a different belief than me. We're still friends. So when you're thinking about your audience and you're thinking about the story you're going to tell, we have this danger that we're afraid to offend. You don't have to put out every single controversial belief you have, but you need to put out some. You need to put out some and take a stand on a few things. There are a few people that dislike me because of my opinion about college. Now, most of the time, they don't listen to what I actually say. They think I'm hard and fast, absolutely against education. I'm not. I actually believe that for certain professions, it could be really good. I just think that for many professions, it's way overpriced for what you walk out of there with. That we have this idea in our heads that education is like, oh, they're helping you. They're not. They're run for profit. Professors make crazy money. Crazy money. And some of them are great. I've had some great professors. Some of them are terrible. We'll have some terrible professors. We all have terrible teachers and great teachers. But at least I'm willing to say something that's firm so you can go, I agree or don't agree with him. I'm in alignment with that belief or I'm not in alignment with that belief. And the more of them you put out there, the easier it is for your audience to go, yeah, I get where this person's coming from. We're on the same page. Which brings us to our second way to build a report. That's parallel enemies. Who's your enemy? When I was in the dating world, I was teaching about dating and teaching men and women how to form better relationships. My enemy was Hollywood. Most of us learn dating communication from entertainment. We learn it from television shows and movies. And I mentioned in previous episodes, we often reenact scenes from television shows and movies without realizing. A lot of people love this movie with Harry Met Sally. Oh, it's these two people, classic love story, late 80s movies, super big success. People still talk about it because it had some very memorable scenes, all have what she's having. But they forget that those two people were going on road trips for 30 years before something came of it. When you watch a movie scene and it shows people on a date, it doesn't show them sitting there for three hours. It shows the best four minutes of it. Every date I've had has had good four minutes. But I've had plenty of dates where the other 96 were terrible. So we get miseducated because we're learning from things that are meant to be educational. A great example of this is where people watch uh, false history entertainment, right? Like Abraham Lincoln wasn't actually a vampire hunter. But I guarantee you some people think that he was because there's a movie called that. We can mislearn, and I'm just as guilty of this, is we watch something that's like not really a documentary, but it has some historical footing. And then we start to get mixed up in our heads, separating between reality and fake reality. So when I create an enemy, I can say, that's your enemy. If I was in the, when I'm in the health space, I go, oh, you know, a big pharma is your enemy because they're motivated to treat you, not to cure you. The worst thing that can happen is for them to cure you because then you don't come back. They don't make any more money, right? The real money is in repeat business. There's this story that like the shaving cream was invented 100 years ago that you shave once, you don't have to shave for six months or you don't have to shave forever. There's different versions. And that one of the big shaving companies bought it and burned, the, and burned it so that no one would ever find out about it. I don't know if it's true, but think of probably that, right? We can, it sounds true because we all believe that idea that what companies want to do is keep you from disappearing, right? They don't want to lose you as a customer. That's why they build products. That's why phones are designed to die after a certain number of years. If you think about the power of your phone, how about this one? The power of your phone, the processing power is more than the processing power they had in all the computers they used in the 1960s to put spaceships with people inside of them onto the moon. Your phone has enough brains to do that. And yet, next year, you need that next edition. And they go, oh, your phone is four years old. We can't allow you to have software updates anymore. We can't, we can't do virus patches anymore because it's, it's such old technology. Really? Even if your phone is an iPhone 1, you could still take that phone, use the power inside of it, that processor, and put another spaceship on the moon. How much power do you actually need to pay Candy Crush and check Facebook every day? So you want to create an enemy. My enemies for my core business are traditional education, their misinformation, their indoctrination, their traditional companies that convince you that you're not worth nearly as much as you're actually worth. So I have enemies too. And when I talk about those, you go, oh, you know what? 
My boss doesn't pay me what I'm worth. I'm starting to get where this guy's coming from. Number three for building rapport is familiar struggles. When you talk about things that have happened to you, there's a reason I tell my story of getting fired all the time. I don't tell every one of my stories. I'll tell you one here that I've never told before. When I was uh, 18, I got a job working for my father's company where he was a vice president in the IT department. I thought I was going in for a job interview. They hired me right away. The salary was quite low, significantly lower than minimum wage, but it was something for me to work on. Eventually, I solved some really big problems, but the guy who hired me always had it out for me. He never liked me, so he would do things to me that were illegal, so I don't like to talk about it. So some of the things that happened were different people would call in a tech support and say, I have this particular problem, can we get it fixed? And the other techs are busy, I go, I know what to do, I have an idea, right? One person, they needed a new scanner, I go, I know there's a new scanner, I found one in the building that was like sitting on a shelf, I had been used, and I said to my team, I go, oh, can we give them this one? They go, oh, I didn't even know that was there, right? Or someone else, they didn't know how to use a full-size keyboard, so I went and found a laptop-sized keyboard they could put on their desk and solve their problem. And when I solved those problems, my manager came in and said, you're not supposed to interact with those people. Now, one of those people that he shouted me about was my best friend's father, someone who I have been to their house, they've been to my house. He married a girl that I asked out once, he doesn't know that, she said no, so there you go. Someone that I've been friends with for my entire life, from my youngest years. And I was, this is my first job, and I didn't really know what to do with my summer job, I didn't really understand this, and so I didn't say anything. And then eventually, they moved me to a room away from the rest of the team that was actually not a room. It was the telephone switch room. So the walls are covered in like telephone wires and stuff. And I had to go through all the old computers and erase their hard drives and put new software on their hard drives so that we could donate them. And I would do that eight hours a day. I did that all summer. And he had a meeting with me where he said some stuff. And he said, you're not allowed to tell your father. This is between you and me. And I didn't say anything at the time because I was so intimidated. But I now realize, especially because my father is my legal counsel of record, that saying that is illegal. You're not supposed to do that to people. You're not supposed to tell a young person that they can't tell their parents about what's happening at work, okay? That's the same type of horrible stuff that adults say to children when they do horrible thing to them, right? Keep this a secret. You're not allowed to tell your parents. Big red flag. I did tell my sister because I'm not a complete idiot. And she goes, that's horrible, but you're going to be out of there in a couple of weeks. So if not, you go, let it slide. But I didn't keep it a secret from everyone, but I never told my dad about it. Probably even now, he's retired. He'd probably still be mad. It was a horrible thing to do. So I don't like to tell that story because I don't like to tell stories where I'm vulnerable but if you've had something like happen to you, you probably feel more rapport with me right now. You get where I'm coming from. If you've had a boss do something to you that took advantage of your ignorance, whether it was messing with your paycheck, messing with your hours, messing with how you felt about yourself, all those things where they said, oh, you're not allowed to talk to your union rep. That's real naughty. And they'll do it if they can get away with it, right? Remember, I hadn't done anything wrong. There was never complaining from me, from anyone at that company about me. Every task they gave me, put in front of me, I solved it. I did it. I helped everyone. But he just hated me because he felt like I got the job because of my dad. I said, you're the one who hired me. If you didn't want me, just don't hire me. I don't care. I thought I was going to do a job interview. I was shocked when he goes, okay, you're, you're starting right now. And I said, what? I thought this was an interview. So I certainly didn't go into that mindset that something had been set up for me. I can understand, right? I can absolutely understand being like, oh, someone's taking advantage of their familial relationship to get a leg up in the world. And I'm going to do everything I can to get revenge on them. Not really healthy when you're 30 years older than somebody. It is what it is. You might think exactly that I was in the wrong. How dare I? I didn't know. I was just trying to get a job in IT to see if I wanted to work in tech support for the rest of my life. But you might think that, oh, you know, you would have killed for an advantage like that. And I totally understand that. But if you've had a boss that's treated you poorly because of something that was outside your control, something that's not your fault, then you know where I'm coming from. So when we're creating our story, especially when we want our sales stories, what we want to go through is the hero's journey. And I cover this in great detail in some other episodes and some other trainings, but I want to give you a rough idea here. I always want to do hero's journey. Best way to learn is watch Star Wars first episode, episode four. That's the perfect version of the hero's journey. Someone starts out at a static place in life. Something happens that pulls them into action. They discover a mentor. They discover an adversary. They lose to the adversary. They learn more from the mentor. Something happens to the mentor. Something happens that pushes them back. They go through a whole journey. They have a success, but not a massive success. And by the end, they're back to another static place where they're no longer in active combat. 
right? So that's why when you read sales letters, they're really good sales letters. They tell a story of someone who found a cure from someone else who shared it with them. And they go, now that my life is better, I want to share it with you too, because I want to pass on that knowledge. I fought the big pharmaceutical company and now I'm ready to share that knowledge with you. I've been up to the mountain, I've come back and I've survived and I want to help you. That's the hero's journey. I tell you all the time about bad things that happen to me, not because I want you to feel bad for me, but because I want you to learn without learning the hard way. I want to help you avoid those struggles and pains. If I can shorten your learning cycle, shorten your success cycle, then I've succeeded in what I've done to teach you. And so the hero's journey is about taking people on your journey where you you had it hard. There's some people that meet me that think I've always been successful. I wish that were true. I wish I didn't have to live in my mom's basement. I wish I didn't live on my friend's couch in a studio apartment for a year and a half. But we all have different struggles. And I know that you've had different struggles than mine. And you've been through things that are more painful than me and painful in different ways. And so I'm not here to say that my suffering was greater than yours. I'm here to simply say that I've been on a journey. And then when you start to sell stuff, you can tell your stories and bring people on your journey. And that's how you become more than a commodity. Nothing that I teach is 100% unique or original. I didn't invent podcasting. I didn't invent blogging. I didn't invent writing books or ghostwriting or anything else that I teach. The difference between me and everyone else is my identity, which is why we're digging so deep into who I am and who I'm teaching too. That's how you tell a story. That's how you get people engaged with you. If people can hear your story, even if it's through a brand, it's through a brand you created and it's the journey and your message, whether that message is every time you buy a pair of socks for us, we donate a sock to a homeless person or every time you buy from us, we donate clean water to a village. That can become part of your story. So you can create stories in other ways. But the important thing is to always create an identity. You, what you don't want to be is a corporation. You don't want to be a machine. You don't want to be a newsletter because then people just see it as a list of products, not as a person creating things who they want to support. There are people who will email me and say, Jonathan, I'm thinking of buying this course. Do you have a link so I can buy it through your link? That's very kind. That really helps my family every single time you do that. Don't think ever, don't think ever that it doesn't mean something to me. Every single time you click one of my links, Go through a product through my affiliate link, one of my recommendations, or buy one of my courses that means something to me because it's you helping my family, and that's why I want to help your family. We have a connection, and that's how I'm more than a commodity. My stories, my personal experiences, my journey, all the things that I've done, the totality of me as a person, living on an island, the kids I've had, all of those stories that I share with you, that's what makes me different. And you might hear those stories, and they repel you, and that is true for 10 to 15% of the people, but the other 85% are pulled towards it. Some are along the spectrum of a little bit interested to, wow, this is the best person I've ever connected with. Some people have a massive connection with me, and I love that. I connect with them even more. They email me more. I email them back more. I do everything I can to be there for them 150%. If you're selling the same widgets as everyone else, how do you get to the top? You become a story. Why does everyone buy GoPros? They were first to market, but come on. There's a lot of other amazing editions of the same thing. Nothing they had is proprietary. What they did is they combined three pieces of equipment that the military was using and made it into a thing, and originally they were going to make it all for surfing, and that became the first story. When you think of GoPro, at least when I think of GoPro, I think of surfing, and then I think of X Games type stuff, right? That's our vision. But a lot of people use it for more than other things, but there's a story there. And stories are how you can turn a commodity into something that's more. The more you can create that vision, the more people will pay for it. I have a really nice wedding ring from my favorite designer that I bought. It's black and looks cool because I like black. I never wear it. Why? Because I go to the gym every day when I'm lifting weights, it gets knocked against it, it hurts my finger. So instead, I bought a rubber ring. My latex wedding ring, which looks exactly the same, you can't tell from across the room. So the other ring is usually in my safe. I only wear it on special occasions. I wear the rubber ring most of the time. It costs less than 50 cents. I bought, a, I bought a pack of a bunch of different sizes in the mail to figure out what size it was. And they were all, I think the whole pack was like 12 inside. It was like $3. So it wasn't very expensive. There are companies out there that are selling the exact same ring for $20. What's the difference? Well, they're telling a story. They tell this whole story about, oh, 
people all the time get their fingers ripped off because of their wedding ring. I don't know how common that is because everyone I know wears a lot of rings. I just personally, because of where I live, I sweat all the time because I'm surfing out in the board or on the water. I don't want to drop my wedding ring into the ocean. I've definitely had my rings slide off. I lose these. I actually have a lot of these latex rings. They fall off my finger all the time at the craziest times. And yet there are people out there paying significantly more than me, 10, 20, 50 times more because that other brand has a story and they're selling something made at the exact same factory. Why do you buy the name brand cereal versus the generic next to it when they're both made in the same factory? The ingredients are 99.99% the same. The only difference is, well, my biggest memory of this is when I looked at Lucky Charms versus the generic. It's like, I recognize these shapes. I can't even tell what those shapes are. I want the marshmallows with the shapes I recognize, right? That's what you're paying for. When it's your parents' money, you don't mind doing that. When it's your own money, suddenly the generic doesn't seem that bad. So creating a story starts with understanding the power of who you are and your identity, how it can help you with your selling, discovering the ability to generate rapport by having alignment of beliefs, developing parallel enemies, and telling and sharing familiar struggles so that people go, I know what you believe. I know what you're fighting against, and I know where you're coming from. That's how we become friends with people. And that's how you can make a lot more money by selling with a story. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Serve No Master. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss another episode. We'll be back next Tuesday with more tips and tactics on how to escape that rat race. Head over to servenomaster.com forward slash podcasts now for your chance to win a free copy of Jonathan's bestseller, Serve No Master. All you have to do is leave a five-star review of this podcast. See you Tuesday.